This is the Music Publishing Podcast with your host, Dennis Tobensky. Join Dennis in his weekly nuts and bolts conversations with composers, performers, and other arts professionals as they navigate their careers as concert musicians in the 21st century. And now your host, Dennis Tobensky. Hey everybody, welcome to the Music Publishing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dennis Tabensky, and uh, this week, uh, I've for those of you who have been uh, loyal, loyal listeners to the podcast, uh, you'll recognize our, our guest from uh, episode number four. Uh, Mark Ostro is the first of the MPP Super Friends to make a, a repeat appearance, so hi, hi Mark. Hey there. <laughs> How's it going? I'm okay, Dennis. How are you? Doing pretty good. Well, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so uh, last time we left off uh, some of the basics of, of fair use. We covered the, the basics of, of copyright, and we, we did a, an overview of fair use. Uh, so we're going to cover some more of that today. But uh, first... Um, we had we went we talked a little bit about you know, via email and we've probably all seen on Facebook the uh, the Department of Justice 100% licensing deal that's going on right now. So, uh, Mark, can you can you explain some of what's going on here and why it's a big deal? Okay, sure. This is going to take a little bit of time because there's <laughs> a fair amount of background that goes into this. Um, this has to do with the consent decrees that ASCAP and BMI have operated under since 1941. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so f for, I guess that's what, 75 years now? Um, Good time, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the two major PROs have been operating under consent decrees that are overseen by the Justice Department. And these consent decrees are, shall we say, charitably amended from time to time. Mm -hmm. The last time that uh, BMI's was amended, I think, was 1994. Uh, and the last <laughs> time ASCAP's was amended was, I believe, 2000. Um, so, you know, certainly they haven't been amended since the dawn of the digital age. Yeah. And... As we all know, a lot has changed in the way music is consumed by the public these mm -hmm. days, uh, having gone from uh, physical products such as CDs to downloads and now increasingly streaming is becoming the dominant means of consumption. Mm -hmm. um, so, and a lot, a lot has changed, you know, when these consent decrees were last amended there was no such thing as YouTube. Uh, the streaming services pretty much didn't exist. So the landscape has changed. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was about two years ago, um, ASCAP and BMI approached the Justice Department. They voluntarily knocked on the DOJ's door and said, hey, can we have a review of our consent decrees? And they were hoping that the DOJ would relax some of the restrictions under which ASCAP and BMI operate. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, there is this thing called the rate court. Now, what the rate court is, do you know what it is, Dennis? Um, have you heard the term before? I, I've, I have heard the term before. It, they, they set... Um... 
They set rates. Yeah, yeah they set they, rates. They do that. Guys. That's what they so do. Let me tell you what the rates court is. The rates court is in both the ASCAP and BMI consent decrees. And these are two different decrees, although they're very, very similar in most respects. Um, there is a mechanism by which if a licensee, a user, whether it's an individual um, TV station, radio station, nightclub, uh, concert hall, what have you, um, whether, where a user and uh, one of the PROs, ASCAP or BMI, can't agree on a fee or the rate, mm-hmm. uh, either party can file an application with the PROs respective rate court judges and mm-hmm. ASCAP has a rate court judge and BMI has a rate court judge. Who or what is the rate court judge? Uh, the rate court is for, in both instances, the Southern District of New York, the federal district court in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But there are two, but uh, there are obviously several judges who sit in the Southern District of New York. So one judge in the Southern District is the judge who is overseeing the ASCAP consent decree, mm-hmm. and therefore that judge is uh, the ASCAP rate court judge, and I think that's currently Denise Cote. Um, and um, the Southern District judge that oversees the BMI consent decree and therefore is the BMI rate court judge is Judge Lewis Stanton. And so what happens is in a rate court proceeding, um, the judge is told under the consent decree to determine a reasonable rate. Mm-hmm. What is a reasonable rate? It's not necessarily a it's not necessarily a free market rate, although they try to make approximations for a free market rate. Mm-hmm. But it's a rate that is determined based upon a litigation in the in federal court in Manhattan and what happens is let's say that somebody wants to start a new streaming service mm-hmm. and they don't like what um, ASCAP or BMI is offering them so they send an application to the rate court and let's mm-hmm. use ASCAP as an example mm-hmm. so they send basically the application is a letter to the judge saying under article blah of the ASCAP consent decree, we request a determination for a reasonable rate for our service. Thank you very much. Love and kisses, uh, prospective (laughs) user. What that means is from the moment they send that letter to the judge, they're automatically licensed. So they can start Hmm. using all of the works in the ASCAP repertoire and not necessarily pay a dime Mm -hmm. until the proceeding is resolved. Great. Now, this is federal litigation. This can take several months <laughs> or sometimes over a year and costs hundreds of thousands of dollars with uh, many witnesses, including expert testimony and, e- mm-hmm. and economists and everything else. Sometimes a judge will set an interim fee that is paid into the court um, so that some fees are being paid while the litigation is going on, but sometimes mm-hmm. not. And so... You can get, and, and given how long it takes to pursue a litigation, the, um, it may take 
a long time before you even get a hearing on <laughs> the application. So meanwhile, the user is using the repertoire for free for just having sent uh, a letter with a first-class postage stamp. <laughs> so the PROs are saying, you know, maybe we should have some modification to this mechanism, maybe an arbitration proceeding or maybe something to streamline this process. And mm -hmm. oh, by the way, you know, we really... Where we really have our hands tied behind our back because they're using our product while we're negotiating. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing. Now, um, the ASCAP uh, consent decree explicitly prohibits for ASCAP from, say, issuing synchronization licenses mm -hmm. and mechanical licenses. The BMI consent decree doesn't have an express prohibition, but because that of the fact that they didn't want the DOJ coming, slamming them down yet again, mm -hmm. um, they have never entered that sphere. Yeah. But of course, these days, as you know, with streaming videos, mm -hmm. as soon as you set image to picture, you have a synchronization usage. Mm -hmm. And once you stream, you have the public performance. And oh, by the way, if it's a copy is on the server, which it almost always is, you have a mechanical usage. So mm -hmm. the PROs have said, and the users want this, they don't want to have to go to three zillion different places to get all the rights they need. Mm -hmm. They said, let's relax the consent decree to allow us to issue you know, multiple licenses, not just public performing licenses. Mm -hmm. And about a year into the proceedings, and nothing was heard from the DOJ um, and they eventually opened it up for public comment, and uh, they had an initial round of comments and a reply round of comments. I submitted my own comments after the DOJ came up with this 100% licensing thing, so mm -hmm. my comments are on the DOJ website. You can read them. I may read an excerpt of them while we're in this discussion. Um, the Copyright Office in 2015 um, issued a comprehensive music licensing report. Mm -hmm. So over 200 pages plus appendices. Um, the executive summary is over a dozen pages. Um, and for those who are interested, you can go to my blog, and I did um, a pretty good summary of it, linking to the actual report if you want to read it. Uh, and my summary plus analysis is about 3,500 words. So, but <laughs> for purposes of this discussion, the Copyright Office, not wanting to tread on the Justice Department's toes, didn't really explicitly say that you sh the consent decree should be amended this way and that, but they came pretty much came out in favor of, a, of relaxing the restrictions mm -hmm. and allowing for multiple licensing, um, among other things. So sometime around that time, the Justice Department, of its own initiative, Nobody, certainly the PROs weren't asking for this. Mm -hmm. The user community, for the most part, wasn't asking for this. Um, came up with the idea of this 100% licensing thing. Yeah. Now, BMI and ASCAP, and CSAC for that matter, which isn't a jury consent decree, um, have always engaged in what is called fractional licensing. Mm -hmm. So now you're probably wondering, okay, what is 100% licensing versus <laughs> fractional licensing? Well, let me tell you. It goes back to some of the discussion I think we had on basic copyright principles along with some basic contract law principles. 
So here's the, the paradigm. You and I write a song together, mm -hmm. okay? You write the lyrics, I write the music. Or if you prefer, I write the lyrics, you write the music. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you prefer, Dennis? Either way, I'm, I'm happy either All right, way. <laughs> so you write the words, I write the music. Now, as a matter of copyright law, who owns what? Uh, it depends how we register. Well, no, we, but we both own, like I, I would own the lyrics, you would own the music, and we would own the, the song together, Correct. Uh, or am I quite. screwing that up? No. You're, you're partially screwing that up. People, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, you know, I did a blog post for New Music Box called Copyright Conundrums for Collaborators, and this is one mm -hmm. of the examples that I yeah. used because most people uh, get this wrong. They assume that, okay, we're co-writers, we kind of own 50% of the thing, but you own the lyrics and I own the music. Mm -hmm. No, we no, each okay. own an undivided 50% interest in the entire song okay so let me explain why that is copyright along with patent and trademark and a few other things are often referred to as intellectual property or intangible mm -hmm. property right mm -hmm. so principles of ip and copyright law uh when these principles were first coming about um were analogized from the world of real property mm -hmm. So let's say that you and I uh, buy a house, okay? Now, it's not like you own the second floor and I own the first <laughs> floor, or you own the front of the house and the, and the front yard, and I own, we, all, we each own 50% of the entire thing. Okay, yeah. So when you put it in that perspective, now it kind of makes sense that mm -hmm. once you and I commit to creating a song, and intent is key here because then we have created a joint work, mm -hmm. which is defined in the, in the Copyright Act. Mm -hmm. And if it's a song with words and music, even though you contribute all of the lyrics and none of the music, and I write all of the music and none of the lyrics, mm -hmm. as a joint work, we each own 50% of the music and lyrics. So what does this mean? Absent a written agreement to the contrary, how many times have you heard that legalistic phrase? Oh, God. <laughs> so, absent a written agreement to the contrary, you can go and license 100% of that song. Mm -hmm. Let's say somebody wants to use that song in a movie. Mm -hmm. And let's say that, we do, that you know, we're self-published. You have, uh, I forget the name of your publishing company, Oh, um, Dubensky Music Press. Dubensky Music. Well, there you go. So you have <laughs> Dubensky Music. I have Ostro Music. You know, we're self-published. You can license, again, absent agreement to the contrary, mm -hmm. all of the rights to that song to the film company, mm -hmm. subject only to your obligation to pay me my 50% share of the proceeds. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? You don't have to tell me what the deal is. You can negotiate the terms. You can cut a good deal or a bad deal. Mm -hmm. I can't do anything to stop you. Similarly, I can do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody wants to record the piece. Uh, it's never been recorded, so there's technically no compulsory mechanical license since it's not a recover, uh, a cover recording. It's a first mm -hmm. recording. I can say, okay, we'll let you record it for 50% of the statutory rate. In which case, you go, what the are you doing, Mark? Why would you do that? And 
I can do that deal. Yeah. It's a bad deal, mm-hmm. but as long as I pay you your 50%, you can't stop me. So mm-hmm. that's the off-the-rack copyright rules for joint works. Okay. Now, again, it, a joint work has to be intent. Let's say um, I am a composer, and I want to set a text, and mm-hmm. it just happens to be a copyrighted text. Let's say it's E.E. E. Cummings, who's notorious for going after people who don't clear <laughs> the rights, uh, his estate. Um, that's not a joint work. There's no intent by mm-hmm. the owner of the text mm-hmm. to collaborate with yeah. me. That's something that has to be cleared. That is a derivative work usage. Yes. Okay? So a joint work is where the parties intend to collaborate and create <laughs> a unified singular work such as a song with words and music. Okay, so is all that clear? Yes. That, now that makes sense. let's go to the real world. <laughs> I'm entering the real world now. Um, in the real world, you have uh, long uh, established principles that you know songwriting is a business. And you have music publishing companies, some very large ones like Lerner Chapel and Sony ATV and Universal, mm-hmm. and some very small ones like Tabensky Music, and mm-hmm. and and you know the, the the classical publishers tend to be uh, fairly small in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what typically happens is, okay, you and I write a song together. Mm-hmm. And you are published by one publisher, and I'm published by another publisher. Mm-hmm. And we have a written agreement that says we separately administer our respective shares. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely common. Or, for example, with respect to BMI, I happen to be a BMI writer. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, I used to work for BMI. I used to serve on the ASCAP Symphony <laughs> Concert Committee. I have friends in both places. But, um, you know, BMI, as part of their works registration, their, their agreement says that you represent that you own the work to the extent of your share and you have to fill out a registration form listing you and any co-writers and what the splits mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even if there's no formal agreement, by contract, what I'm saying is that you can modify the off-the-rack rules. Mm-hmm. For example, you and I, the off-the-rack rule is there's two writers. It's a 50-50 split. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say you're far more famous than me, mm-hmm. and you also happen to be a popular recording artist in addition to a lyricist, and you collaborate with me to write the music. You mm-hmm. think we're going to... Uh, you think you're going to agree or your management is going to agree to a 50-50 split? Nope. Probably not. Is it going to be 60-40? Is it going to be 75-25? Who who knows? But you're probably going to get more than 50% because Mm -hmm. you have more bargaining power. And I'm essentially, since we're positing that you're a famous recording artist in addition to being a lyricist, I'm writing your coattails. Mm Mm-hmm. So by contract, you can modify the underlying copyright principles mm-hmm. that in the absence of an agreement to the contrary, these mm-hmm. are what the off-the-rack rules are. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what the Justice Department did is they said, well, 
we think that not only does the we think that the consent decree requires 100% licensing, the kind of licensing that is the off the rack principle where the two of us can each license 100% of the song subject mm -hmm. to the obligation to account to the other party or parties. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the pop world these days, there are often three, four, five songwriters. I mean, mm -hmm. people who work with a major producer like Dr. Luke, somebody writes what they call the top line, they have somebody else doing the beats, they have somebody else doing lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how music is created. Um, so you have several people who have songwriter credit, and probably each of them, well, several of them may have uh, separately administered rights. Mm -hmm. And it's very often that one collaborator is a member of one society. I happen to be BMI. Are you ASCAP or BMI? Uh, I, I'm ASCAP. <laughs> so there you go. Perfect example. A BMI writer is collaborating with an ASCAP writer. And in the world of fractional licensing, which means that the respective PRO only licenses and bases its fee on only the share of the work that it controls, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's all fine. And the way ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, for that matter, have worked for 75 plus years mm -hmm. is that, let's say, there's a third rider. So it's, you know, one third, one third, one third, and two of the riders are ASCAP and one of the riders is BMI. Mm -hmm. ASCAP would license 66% of the song and BMI mm -hmm. would license 33% of the song. Mm -hmm. DOJ has taken the position that the consent decrees not only now require 100% licensing, but in the view of other music lawyers who represent publishers and composers, um, have taken the somewhat Orwellian view that the consent decree has always required 100% <laughs> licensing, notwithstanding the fact that uh, the BMI membership agreement explicitly contemplates fractional licensing. Mm -hmm. The ASCAP membership agreement is a little bit more ambiguous, but clearly ASCAP, like BMI, has operated on a fractional licensing basis for basically its entire existence. Mm -hmm. Not only that, this is how everybody operates. For example, put aside the consent decrees. Let's say, uh, going back to the sync licensing situation, mm -hmm. and let's say we're both pretty prominent songwriters. You're ASCAP, I'm BMI, you're affiliated with Warner Chapel, I'm affiliated with Sony ATV. Mm -hmm. They want to go, uh, so a music supervisor working for uh, the producer of a big budget feature film, you know, the, uh, the franchised five part six, mm -hmm. um, wants to use the song. Yeah. So they would go get quotes from both Universal Music, I mean, Warner Chapel Music mm -hmm. and Sony ATV mm -hmm. because we live in a fractional licensing world. Mm -hmm. The assumption is especially when dealing with the major publishers is that each party licenses only its respective share yeah. that we don't operate in the general off the rack copyright principles mm -hmm. of a hundred percent licensing um why is this a big deal okay 
And why is the Justice Department insisting on it? Well, the Justice Department, in its infinite wisdom, has seized upon the language in the ASCAP consent decree that says you have to license all of the, uh, what one says works and the other one says compositions. But they both use the language you have to license all of the works or compositions in your repertoire. Mm-hmm. And they say that a work is a unified work, not 10% of a work or 50% mm-hmm. of a work. It's the work, meaning mm-hmm. 100% licensing. Mm-hmm. Now, herein lies the problem. You So a user wants to get a license from ASCAP, and ASCAP now has to do 100% licensing. And they have, say, 50% of the song and the other writer's BMI. Mm-hmm. The BMI writer is not in the ASCAP system. Mm-hmm. They have no way to account to the BMI writer. Mm-hmm. The BMI writer is saying, hey, I didn't join ASCAP. Yeah. I want to be paid according to the BMI rate payment schedule and BMI rate payment rules, mm-hmm. but under 100% licensing, go- going back to the crazy examples that we used a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. ASCAP could have... Uh, payment rates that are lower than BMI's or vice versa, mm-hmm. in any event, under a 100% licensing regime, I'm now subject to potentially being subject to a payment regime and a PRO and a consent decree that I didn't join. <laughs> Great. That's wonderful. And now there's additional administrative burden that ASCAP and BMI have to figure out how to account to each other. Mm-hmm. And so where is that administrative cost going to come out? Out of what's probably out of what's left over to otherwise pay the songwriters and the publishers. Exactly. So now herein lies the the rub. In all the reply comments, and certainly ASCAP and BMI submitted comments, like I said, I submitted comments, out the wazoo, it's like all of these points were made. And um, you're basically in a position of vitiating tens of thousands of private contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see how this can be uh, more than a bit of a problem. Now, what's more is that let's say you have foreign writers, uh, the Brits who are Mm -hmm. members of PRS. Mm -hmm. All of the PROs throughout the world have reciprocal agreements where a PRS member whose works are performed in the U.S. Mm -hmm. designates either ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC to collect on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Now, many territories outside of the U.S. don't have this American off-the-rack copyright rule of 100% licensing. Mm -hmm. Their copyright laws are based solely on fractional licensing. <laughs> so that's where so that's where I was going. So let's say you have I now have this rediscovered my train of thought. Yay. Okay. Here's where it gets even worse. Um, let's say that there are agreements in place that state that for a particular work, um, the agreements are such that you have that as cat and BMI only has been granted a fractional share. Mm-hmm. Well, DOJ, in its infinite wisdom, says, well, we're giving you a year 
we're going to forego enforcement of this rule that has always been the rule, by the way, wink, wink, um, <laughs> even though industry custom and BMI's own affiliation agreements, which DOJ is well aware of, mm-hmm. explicitly contemplate the other rule. Um, because one of the things that we recommend to solve this problem, because what DOJ says, well, if you are contractually unable to grant 100% licensing, well, that work has to be removed from your repertoire. So that means, let's say you have an ASCAP collaborator and a BMI collaborator, Mm -hmm. and they have an agreement that says each party administers their own respective shares. Mm -hmm. One of two things has to happen. Either nobody can license that work, Mm -hmm. which meaning the users can't get a license for it from the PROs, and the songwriters can't get paid for the usage. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fun? <laughs> or DOJ says, well, the parties will just need to modify their underlying agreements to comply with this. Now, mind you, the songwriters and publishers are private parties, and they're not subject to the consent decree. Only ASCAP yeah. and BMI are subject to the consent decree. Yeah, so exactly. DOJ can't order you and I to rewrite our contract. No. But they're making it so that, okay... Unless we do, nobody can license the work. Mm-hmm. Unless we individually go directly license all the radio and TV stations. And mm-hmm. this is why blanket licensing exists. Yeah. To avoid this nonsense. So, um, a couple of my colleagues that I was discussing earlier talked about what we call in the law and economics thing, because, of course, being a University of Chicago Law School grad, I had more than my share of law and economics, think about the transactions costs associated with modifying tens, if not hundreds of thousands of contracts. Mm -hmm. Now, let's make this even more interesting. Let's say that you and I entered into this agreement 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. and I'm dead. And you have to go (laughs) negotiate a modification of this separately administered uh, shares agreement with my heirs. Mm-hmm. And my heirs don't know diddly squat about the music business, and they hire a lawyer because they mm-hmm. think, why is this guy coming out of the woodwork? Uh, I'm nervous. I might being ripped off, which means you have to hire a lawyer. Mm-hmm. All because the <laughs> DOJ decided that 100% licensing is the way to go. Um, I would like to uh, tell you what the Copyright Office said yeah. about um, the DOJ's view of 100% licensing. Earlier this year, um, can you still see me, Dennis? Yep. Because right okay. now I have a, a document up on my screen, so I can't see you. Yeah. I, so okay, earlier okay. this year, Doug Collins, who's a congressman from Georgia who's very friendly to songwriters, mm-hmm. uh, heard about this, frag- this 100% licensing stuff and sent a request to the Register of Copyrights, Maria Palante, saying, what do you make of this 100% licensing? (laughs) And Register Palante issued a 29-page report um, addressing this issue. And And let me just read you one excerpt from this. Yeah. And again, this is on my blog, both, uh, you know, uh, the the music licensing report, this report, And this is what the Copyright Office wrote about 100% licensing. 
The office believes that an interpretation of the consent decrees that would require these PROs, meaning ASCAP and BMI, to engage in 100% licensing presents a host of legal and policy concerns. Such an approach would seemingly vitiate important principles of copyright law, interfere with creative collaborations among songwriters, negate private contracts, and impermissibly expand the reach of the consent decrees. It could also severely undermine the efficacy of ASCAP and BMI, which today are able to grant blanket licenses covering the vast majority of performances of musical works, a practice that is considered highly efficient by copyright owners, copyright owners and users alike. That was just at the top of page three. Yeah. So the copyright office said, Dishtunk. <laughs> DOJ, undeterred, on August 4th, issued its ruling that 100% licensing is the way to go. And as you can imagine, the um, songwriter and music publisher communities are up in arms. And ASCAP and BMI issued press releases. And um, basically what's happening is uh, because, again, uh, the consent decrees are under the antitrust rules, meaning mm -hmm. the, uh, the goal of the consent decrees and Justice Department oversight is to foster competition. Um, competition for what, you may ask, you know, what it doesn't take into account is competition for creation of the best and maximum amount of songs, because let's say now you're an ASCAP writer, I'm a BMI writer, mm. uh, under 100% licensing, I may not be able to collaborate with you anymore because it's just yeah. too administratively inconvenient. Mm -hmm. So you have the Justice Department forcing songwriters potentially to only collaborate with members of their own society. Mm -hmm. um, so... It's supposed to foster composition, uh, competition, but as we've seen, and in the Justice Department acknowledges, if the either PRO can't issue 100% licensing because of contractual arrangements, and it's a bedrock principle of contract law that you can't grant out and license more rights than you have been given... Mm -hmm. You know, again, going back to the physical world, I own a loaf of bread. I give you half of that loaf. Mm -hmm. You can't turn around and sell my half of that loaf to somebody <laughs> else. You can only sell your half. Exactly. So, so if by contract, ASCAP and BMI can't uh, issue 100% licensing, then these works have to come out of the repertoire, and mm -hmm. users can't get bl blanket licenses that cover them. How mm -hmm. does that foster... Uh, competition and and benefit anybody. Yeah, it certainly doesn't. The the competition should increase. Uh, you should be competitive for the what you offer your members, and also what competitive in terms of licensing to outside so, users. So who so who does this benefit? Well, um, the head of the uh, the chief of the the division under the Justice Department that put out this report. Um, spent several years in private practice working for a firm where her sole client was Google. Mm -hmm. And Google owns... Everything. <laughs> well, YouTube, for example. Yeah. So, you know, some users may get a benefit out of fractional licensing because what happens is 
they say, okay, I'll just get an ASCAP license or fine. You know, I use ASCAP all the time. Let's, I'll just get a BMI license. Mm-hmm. I don't need to get an ASCAP license or they play one off against the other. Who mm-hmm. offers the lowest rate? Yeah. And so now I don't need the blanket license from the other society because of 100% licensing. Mm-hmm. So that, to a certain extent, fosters the dissemination of music, of course. Um, it basically dep- or, uh, artificially depresses yeah. the f- fees that songwriters can earn from their craft mm-hmm. because of this Justice Department rule. Mind you, one thing, remember I mentioned the, the 200-page music licensing report? Mm-hmm. One thing that the Copyright Office pointed out then is that the Justice Department in its own regulations, and mind you, I haven't looked at these regulations, so I'm taking the Copyright Office's word for it, <laughs> is that the consent decree under DOJ policy isn't supposed to last more than, say, seven years. Yeah. And these consent decrees have lasted more than 70 years. Mm-hmm. So what the Justice Department did... Um, last week is said, you know, all that stuff about relaxing the restrictions on the consent decree, well, we're going to table that for now because we're insisting on this 100% licensing stuff and all of the issues associated with 100% licensing will need to be sorted out. So we'll, we'll reserve for another day, nudge, nudge, mm-hmm. um, any consideration of other modifications to the consent decree. So basically, the stuff that ASCAT and BMI uh, wanted, um, they didn't get. Yeah. And this 100% licensing issue, um, the Copyright Office was asked, has this issue, to your knowledge, ever been raised before? No. 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 In the in the 70-some-odd years that these consent decrees have been around, nobody raised this 100% licensing issue. Mm-hmm. So that's what this is all about. And so you're stuck with a regime where some works may not be able to be licensed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Parties may have to engage in time-consuming and or expensive uh, contractual modifications to their agreements. Mm -hmm. We may have problems with foreign works that it's not permitted to engage in a in a hundred percent licensing, they only have a fractional licensing regime. Mm-hmm. So you have issues of reciprocity for foreign works. Yeah. Um, so that is what this is all about. So what's going to happen? ASCAP and BMI have issued uh, basically joint statements, and again, they can't, you know, completely collaborate <laughs> because again, they're subject to anti-competition consent decrees. Yeah. Um, so. BMI, ASCAP has decided that they're going to pursue legislation to undo some of this. Mm-hmm. And given how uh, effective the last few Congresses have been <laughs> about enacting any legislation, um, good luck with that. And really? we wish ASCAP well, um, <laughs> seriously. But it's, it's, a, it's definitely an uphill battle. Yeah. BMI is going to go the litigation route, and they're going to challenge the Justice Department's interpretation of their consent decree mm-hmm. in its rate court. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's possible that BMI will win, and and Judge Stanton will say, DOJ, you're blowing smoke here. It, mm-hmm. It's fractional licensing. It's always been fractional licensing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you have to construe these consent decrees in accordance with industry custom. And you have seven decades of industry custom. Mm -hmm. You've never raised this issue before yeah. for all the, re all, all the reasons we've discussed. Yeah, yeah. And Judge Stanton can rule that way. But mm -hmm. guess what? Somebody else, not ASCAP, can bring a rate proceeding. A user can bring a rate proceeding in the ASCAP rate court. And the ASCAP rate court could rule the other way. Then mm -hmm. what happens? Mm -hmm. Well, then you have an appeal to the Second Circuit to sort it out. <laughs> and that could take years yeah. before the district court decisions are resolved. And then you have to have an appeal and then argument and briefing in the Second Circuit. And then they have to issue. So yeah, we could have years that, of upheaval. That's great. So that is why I said that, you know, uh, the songwriting and music publishing community is uh, outraged and pretty much apoplectic about what the Justice Department has done. Yeah. And even the Copyright Office, a nonpartisan government office charged with the interpretation of copyright law, said, no, this is this is this is stupid. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard a lot of uh, really angry people um, talking about this lately. And yeah, so. Again, we've spent, I'm sure, uh, I'm looking at my, my clock, I'm sure it's well over a half hour going, going through the, the background on copyright mm -hmm. principles, on contract principles, and where all this stuff came from. Mm -hmm. uh, is it clear to you as a non-lawyer, non-PRO executive, blah-de-blah, -blah, <laughs> as just a composer who has to rely on your PRO for, for royalties? Because if it's not clear to you, it's not going to be clear to the listeners. So I just want to make, and you are the proxy for the yeah. listeners at large. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, yeah, I mean, th this this makes a, 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 I mean, it obviously doesn't make a goddamn bit of sense, but it makes <laughs> sense to me. Well, my um, explanation of what? Yeah, yeah your your explanation is, is is quite good. Uh, th th thank you for that. I, I've I've done a little bit of research on my own. Um, you know, when when I talk to a, a particular person who shall remain nameless and is affected by a lot of this, um, and, and just to find out what what the hell this is, and yeah, it's just it's really it's bizarre, and and yeah, this this puts a nice. Um, yeah, I haven't yeah. done it yet, but I'll probably do a blog post that'll link to the DOJ statement and uh, the Copyright Office's prior statement and the ASCAP and BMI press releases and all that, but all of the. But you, you can go to uh, the ASCAP and BMI websites and, mm. and, 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 and get there if you or yeah. your listeners want to go and read the underlying uh, documents and statements. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to that stuff. I'll link to, to your blog since you do have some stuff about it already. Um, and you mentioned before we went on the air, uh, the Tricordist has a was did a, a remind me what that. Uh, that's David Lowry's mm -hmm. uh, blog, and he uh, had an hour-long discussion uh, with Chris Castle and Steve Winogradsky, who are uh, music lawyers, uh, about this. And basically, you know, they did about an hour worth of it, uh, and they were cause, partly because there was three of them, <laughs> and uh, we basically covered the same ground in about. 40, 40 minutes, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but feel free to check out uh, their statements uh, they they do flesh out some of this a little bit more than I did mm -hmm. um, but I'll link to that where 
where I, I am definitely on the same page with my colleagues uh, there, and they go into much more depth about the Google connection. Yeah, the, the that, that'll be interesting to to get to know more about. I know that tech is a behind a, a lot of weird copyright um, mm-hmm. things and, and licensing upheaval. Uh, so I, I definitely want to learn more about that. Um, do you want to move on to a little bit of fair use? Uh, sure. We talked about a couple of things before we came on. Just um, So I, I want to go through a couple of, of examples of things that may or may not be fair use and um, and you know how to, to navigate some of that. Um, and I've kind of got it in th- three sections here. One is for, for composers, uh, potentially using snippets of other people's work, you know, quoting or, or working bits in, of, of someone else's work into your own. Um, then for performers, uh, and this is very closely tied to um, like educators, uh, having a, owning a copy of, of music and then using, you know, owning a legitimate copy and, and using uh, photocopies. So let's start with the, the composerly bit. Um, well, the, before before you give yeah. me the hypothetical, since yeah, yeah. we went through all the basic principles in in episode four, mm-hmm. uh, first I would remind your dedicated uh, listeners to go check out episode four, where Absolutely. I do go through all the basics of fair use. Yeah. But just for this discussion, I'll do a nickel version recap. Perfect. Um, Perfect. The nickel version recap is fair use is codified in section one hundred seven of the Copyright Act. So it is currently a statutory provision of the copyright law that governs fair use. Section 107 states and the Supreme Court in the uh, Campbell v. A. Cuff Rose uh, confirmed that fair use is a defense to infringement. It is not an affirmative right. Mm -hmm. Um, And Section 107 has four factors that one... Uh, uses to determine whether something is fair use. They're non-exclusive factors, although the courts have basically uh, said that these are the factors. And uh, Section 107 also lists uh, categories of uses that could be fair use, such as news reporting, educational Mm -hmm. uses, that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And even though the statute says it's not exhaustive, the courts have pretty much construed that to be a fairly exhaustive list. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the nature of the character of the use, how much of the material you've used, what's the effect on the market of your use. Uh, that's all in the Section 107. Mm-hmm. As we discussed uh, last time, uh, for over 20 years now, since the Campbell v. A. Cuff Rose decision, that's the Two Life Crew Pretty Woman case, Mm-hmm. Um, the fifth factor that's, that's not in the statute but has become the most important determination, which they usually embed it in the first factor, mm-hmm. um, uh, is whether the use is transformative or not. Mm-hmm. And what is transformative use? It's making either a new type of usage of the underlying material or creating a use that is that is a that is that describes the underlying work Mm -hmm. for example one of the examples that i use that describes the underlying work or provides information about the underlying work but does not transform the work per se 
is uh, when you do a search for visual images and you get thumbnails, uh, thumbnail uh, images mm -hmm. of the entire work. So mm -hmm. it's a use of the entire work, which presumably is not a fair use, but it's not really a substitute for that image per se. It's telling you this is the image, click on the link and go to the image. Mm -hmm. Or at least, you know, that's the theory. Another transformative use is parody, which is, of course, the A Tough Rose use, uh, where you take some portion of an underlying work, in this case, the Pretty Woman song, mm -hmm. the Orbison hit, and quote it and then add your own original material that comments on the work. Mm -hmm. So that would be considered a transformative use. So those are your basic fair use principles, other than to say that there are no bright line rules. Mm -hmm. It's not a hard and fast rule that if you take four bars of music and quote only that, it's fair use, or if you only put up 30 seconds of an audio or video clip, mm -hmm. it's automatic. No, it's always on a case-by-case -case determination. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, shoot. Yes. So uh, the first example that, that we, we had talked about is... Um, if uh, if let's let's say I were to I, I wanted to write a song cycle, and mm -hmm. uh, which is totally fine, and I wanted to use uh, Shakespeare's sonnets as the text, which again public domain, totally perfectly fine. fine. You can fold, spindle, and mutilate to your heart's content. <laughs> and, and and so the the musical element, I would like to take um, hooks from pop songs and use the the some of that material from the hook as part of the musical material for, for the song itself. So, for example, I'm going to set um, How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways, and I decide to use the, the violin hook from, um, from Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe and make that be the, the opening of the vocal melody. So, how do I love thee? So you've got the bump, 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 bump from Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, those are the pitches. The rhythms are different, and this is going to be woven throughout the the piece. You know, maybe fragmented uh, octave displacements, uh, all the all the things that we do to musically develop the material. Mm -hmm. To you know, to what degree are, are is this transformative fair use? Is that do do I need to worry about um, if well, I say in the program notes <laughs> that this is well, well, well. The answer, of course, Dennis, is you know, the typical lawyerly answer. Mm -hmm. it, it depends. It depends. <laughs> um, so let's see. What does it depend on? So are you quoting the actual phrase from that instrumental violin hook from the Carly Rae Jepsen song? Yeah, in, in in my example, it wouldn't Your be. Example. Yeah, in my example, it's not a, a direct. The the rhythm is 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 different, and it's it's a different. Uh, it's for the okay, voice, right? Fine. So, if I understand your example correctly, you're taking this copyrighted pre-existing material, mm -hmm. but you're using it as basically musical clay, and you're molding it differently. Mm -hmm. You're not using any of the lyrics, mm -hmm. and and certainly that phrase doesn't have lyrics. You're mm -hmm. not using the master recording. You're not mm -hmm. sampling. Mm -hmm. You're just taking that that motif mm -hmm. with its pitches and rhythm and starting out using the pitches but changing the rhythm mm -hmm. perhaps extending it over more bars mm -hmm. uh, elongating some notes shortening others mm -hmm. so the question that i have is would the lay listener without knowing where you're getting your source material from would they <laughs> recognize that as the riff from call me maybe 
I, ideally, no. And if the answer is no, or at least probably not, mm-hmm. then I would say not only is that not not only is that a fair use, it's not even a use mm-hmm. because you are not using the copyrightable expression. Mm-hmm. You're taking it and molding it into some other copyrightable expression. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if it took a musicologist to figure out how you created <laughs> your source material, um, then you know you're you're fine. Even if you put in the program notes that some of this was inspired by, or I used uh, the pitches of, mm-hmm. you can use the pitches of anything. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not copyrightable material. Um, but let's take the example. Let's say you use that riff, and you featured it prominently, let's say you set part of Shakespeare's text to that riff, and it's a recognizable riff. Mm-hmm. Then. And, and it's recognizable that the average listener would say, hey, that's the hook from Call Me Maybe. Um, again, it's a small quote, but since it's the hook, mm-hmm. I would say it's probably not a fair use. Mm-hmm. And setting lyrics to a pre-existing work that's a derivative work. That's mm-hmm. not a transformative use. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same as if you took that, took that riff and even if, and used it as if you were sampling it. You're not using the master recording. What is part of your compositional process? Mm-hmm. You used a minimalist looping mm-hmm. of it. Uh, again, if you're repeating that over and over again, obviously the more you use, even a small amount of recognizable copyrightable expression. Mm -hmm. chances are that's not going to be a fair usage. Mm -hmm. The usage that you posited where you're just taking that hook and you're banging it out into something else, Mm -hmm. the fact that you took that material to start with, Mm -hmm. um, I would say not. uh, it would at a minimum be a fair use, but probably a non-use because you're not using the actual copyrightable expression. Cool. Um, and I just thought of another thing. What about um, very small embedding very small quotes? This is something that I have done in my music of typically quoting teachers of mine as an homage, just a mm-hmm. brief, you know, like a phrase from an existing work of theirs that they've published or has been published by somebody else. Um, to, to do that, is that um, Is there a degree to which that's no longer acceptable if it's just a a, a moment of here's... Again, if it's a fleeting moment, and look, you know, jazz musicians, uh, especially when they're soloing, quote Mm -hmm. popular tunes and standards all the time. Yeah. And nobody's ever sued anybody over that. Uh, You know, part of the difference is, even though it may be memorialized in a recording of an improvisation, Mm -hmm. um, here you're... including it in the score. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little bit more of a permanent type usage. Mm-hmm. Um, and unlike the uh, jazz recording of a solo where he's quoting, it's not part of the piece per se, whereas mm-hmm. your usage, it is part of the piece. That being said, again, it depends. If mm-hmm. these are just fleeting things, uh, a small phrase, um, Let's say, let's use uh, Beethoven's Fifth. It's public domain, but let's mm-hmm. say it was still under copyright. And you went, da, 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 
yeah. and that was it. Um, again, there's no hard and fast rules, mm -hmm. but it's more likely to be fair use mm -hmm. uh, than if you took that phrase and did Beethovenian development of it mm -hmm. or quoted it several times. Mm -hmm. And then you know, took that phrase and, you know, again, used comp typical compositional techniques where you elongate it, you do it in retrograde, all mm -hmm. that stuff, where it's recognizably that phrase. Mm -hmm. Your Carly Rae Jepsen example, it wasn't that. Yeah. Again, there are degrees. Mm -hmm. the, the example that you posit where it's just a fleeting quote and you move on, um, that it takes somebody who knows that composer's work to even recognize it mm -hmm. and it goes by and, and you miss it if you're not paying attention <laughs> chances are that's going to be fair use yeah if it's what i would call and this is not a technical legal term but if it's say a featured quote mm -hmm. where you know you're taking a quote and you're orchestrating it and it's featured in your piece and it's recognizably that mm -hmm. and you're using that as part of your real uh you know materials then I would say you were on much shakier ground mm -hmm. and you know in my own personal experience going back to my days at Boozy I'm aware of situations where uh, composers uh, wanted to quote something and they sought permission and were denied and they had to you know essentially rewrite mm -hmm. their piece <laughs> yeah. um, it's a shame, but put yourself on the other foot if you're the if you're the composer being mm -hmm. quoted and you don't want to be mm -hmm. have your work appropriated in that. <laughs> um, so again, it's a continuum. But mm -hmm. the two examples that you posited, uh, one I would say is probably a non-use. Mm -hmm. um, there was a very famous example, a famous case uh, back in the 1960s involving Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what it was, was it would be parody lyrics and it would be sung to the tune of, but yeah. they wouldn't reproduce the music. They would yeah. just say, sing these lyrics to, this to the tune of this famous piece. And, one, mm -hmm. and you know, Irving Berlin sued. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't remember some of these usages. I remember one uh, from Moon River. Mm. Move, chop, liver, onions <laughs> on the side. My social life has died from you. But again, they didn't, they just said sung to the tune of Moon River. Mm -hmm. That was deemed not a fair use, but a non-use. There was yeah. no reproduction of copyrightable expression. Exactly. You can't control what a person knows in their head. Yeah. Uh, so again, with your Carly Rae Jepsen thing, if you take source material and bang it into something that's totally unrecognizable to the average listener, mm -hmm. you're not really using that expression as that expression, you took that expression and made it into something else. At a minimum, it's transformative. Mm -hmm. I would say it's not even a usage. Nice, cool, good. That's good to know. Um, so the the second example uh, with performers, um, I, I I was in a situation uh, a, a year or two ago. I was performing a couple of of newer works that were were published, and um, for the rehearsal period, the uh, what was it? They couldn't get the scores to me fast enough, so they sent me a PDF, I printed it out, and I worked off of that, and then had, like, these scores were purchased for me, and I mm -hmm. have them right over there. Um, to Is there a, a, a 
any sort of problem with owning an original, like legitimately owning the original of the score, and um, and but still performing off of a of a photocopy or particularly, I think performing rather than well, than look just... the the making additional copies of a law of a lawfully purchased copy for private usage. You know, it there is an argument that that would be a fair use. I don't know if it's been affirmatively determined that that sort mm -hmm. of usage is a fair use. But if you remember from our last discussion, we had a little bit of talk. I talked about prosecutorial discretion, mm -hmm. that even if something is technically an infringement, the copyright owner here, most likely a music publisher, is not going to bother with it. In this particular situation, where the legitimate copy was actually purchased mm -hmm. and the music publisher got the sale and, and earned royalties for the composer. And you're using that additional copy, even though you got a PDF in advance, the copy was purchased and eventually given to you. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, the publisher is just glad that they made the sale. Yeah. And unless you are then distributing that and giving that copy mm -hmm. to somebody else, even if it were considered a technical infringement, nobody's mm -hmm. going to go after you for that. First of all, how are they going to know? Yeah. And second of all, if they did know, you actually purchased the music. And mm -hmm. so you made, a, you made a copy for your own private usage, and you're not further distributing it. So mm -hmm. I would say, even if it is perhaps a technical infringement, it's the sort of thing that nobody in all likelihood, is ever going to go after you for. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that ties into the, the, the third example, uh, which uh, we, we had talked off-air um, in the... There's a, a, a private group for uh, music spoke composers, and this, this came up uh, in, in the ACDA uh, forums. There was a really big to-do over... Um, over photocopying choral music and you know various directors were chiming in and there was a lot of misinformation flying around and a lot of uh, kind of crazy opinions um i think what the there are a couple there were a couple of examples there of, of you know like frankly like okay yes you, you you buy one copy of a choral piece you and you copy it photocopy it 50 times for your group that's not that's clearly that yeah that's no that, 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 that is not fair use that yeah. is just that's just crappy. <laughs> yeah, that's just crappy. You're you're depriving the, uh, the the copyright owner and the composer of uh, legitimate royalties for the use of the work. Yeah, that's that that's flat out no good. Um, the one of the the examples that mostly got uh, crapped on was uh, well sometimes but not always was uh, if a person or if a, if a if a choir director. Um, and you know we're assuming that they're they're in a school which has a tight budget. Um, choir director has a choir of forty members, and they purchase forty one copies, one for themselves and one for each of the students. They work off of the purchased score. They take the other forty originals that they have legally copied, lock them in a filing cabinet, and uh, uh, then and hang, hang on a second. Yep. I don't know who this is, but they're gone. <laughs> uh, take the, uh, you know, then you take 
you know, the one original, and you make 40 photocopies for your students because they're, you know, let's say they're junior high or high school kids. They're not always very responsible. They might lose or damage the thing. They're going to be marking it up. And at the end of the semester, you or after the concert, you collect those again and throw them away. There's some people who are really dead set against that, and some people find that to be their, their typical mode of op- operating. Um, from from a, a standpoint of, of fair use, what, what what do you think about that? It just it just doesn't sound right to me that you're making forty additional copies, even though you port, purchased the forty mm-hmm. legitimately. Um, but again, you know there are arguments to be made mm-hmm. that you're just making a you know a, a a duplicate set of a legitimately purchased copy. Mm-hmm. And it's not, certainly if it's further distributed, that's, that's, that's a problem. clearly, yeah. uh, that's clearly wrong. Yeah. Um, I but I, my, my gut tells me that, you know, this is not a practice that it would be, uh, something that I would condone, um, but at the same time, I go back to prosecutorial discretion. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, you know, the, 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 the choral director legitimately purchased all the copies that mm-hmm. were needed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, th- I think um, in, in, these, in this particular example that I've, that I've read about and, I, and I've thought about, it's, there, there is a, a one-to-one ratio of, you know, right. legitimately. So, you know, assu- let's yeah. assume that hypothetical. There's. Mm-hmm. There, there's 40 students in the choir, and they mm-hmm. purchase 41 copies for one, one for the choral director. Mm-hmm. Um, unless somebody rats them out, mm-hmm. how is the publisher going to know? Yeah, the publisher, you know, whether it's whether it's Hal Leonard or Shermer or Subido or Boozy or what have you, mm-hmm. they're just going to see that they made a sale, yep. and they're happy to make the sale. Yeah, um, but again. You can also make the argument, well, if they take those copies and give them to the school down the street, how is the, the publisher going to know unless somebody rats them out? But that's clearly an infringement. Mm-hmm. You can't... Giving the photocopies. You can't take those photocopies and lend them, sell them, rent them, whatever. Mm-hmm. You, can't have, you can't distribute those copies to a, to a third party. Mm-hmm. I mean, I admit it's a closer question whether you can make 40 private copies uh, when you've purchased, when you've legitimately purchased the originals, it just it, to me, it just doesn't smell right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think but, the, the, the big reason it, it's done it, and it ultimately, I don't think this really bears out, is um, the, the directors, because they, they have such a limited budget, they don't want to, if, if copies are lost or damaged they don't want to have to pay for replacement copies however they've just spent how much on photocopies uh, well, it, it, <laughs> i mean here's the thing you know ha- having worked in-house as a publisher and have and having represented other publishers if a choral director actually took the time and sent an email to to uh you know Al Leonard, Boozy, Shermer, Presser, mm-hmm. Subido, Peters, Peer, what have you, and say, look, I purchased this. You can check your records. Mm-hmm. You lost a couple of copies. Can I make it, you know, three or four copies, you know, for goodwill? 
Yeah. If nothing else, prosecutorial mm -hmm. discretion, the publisher will probably say, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Or they may say, you know, if you have an account with us, you know, we'll charge yeah. you a couple yeah. of shekels, yeah. What, yeah. what have you. There yeah. are ways of doing this properly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, again, making an entire duplicate set because you're <laughs> fearful that some of the parts are going to be lost or your your junior high students are going to spindle them or write on them beyond having mm. them be usable again, that's <laughs> not a legitimate excuse. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually, you brought up a, an example um, with this of, of band music, like a junior high band piece where you have a, a, a third clarinet part that gets lost or um, something like right. that. Right, I mean, and again, if if you make an additional copy of, of, of the third clarinet part, um, one who's going to know Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the set was legitimately purchased. Mm -hmm. If you lost a whole bunch of parts, then the proper thing to do is you know drop a note to the publisher, say please can I make the copies, mm -hmm. and you know there's a good chance the email will be ignored or lost in in the yeah. in, in the great wash of things. But chances mm -hmm. are, if it's not ignored, as a matter of best business practices and just sheer goodwill, even though technically they could charge. Mm -hmm. They're probably going to say thank you for doing the right thing and contacting us. Yeah, please make you know feel free to make you know x number of additional copies with our blessing. Yeah, yeah, and at worst they're going to say, "Go we'll ahead, char make we'll charge you yeah. a couple of bucks." Yeah, but yeah, like go ahead and make your copies while 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 you know, but you know, please purchase you know some originals uh, to make up for that. But use photocopies in the meantime until they arrive. You know. But, um, but yeah, look, yeah. Every, every, everybody is always pleaded poverty. Mm -hmm. oh, and, everybody does. You know, if you're that poor, perform PD music. Right? <laughs> yeah. And good luck with that for choral music. Oh, I know. <gasps> <laughs> There's only so much, uh, you know, Mozart and Bronze um, can do. Anything else for me uh, today? I, I think we hit everything for today. Um, so thanks for coming on the show again. Uh, always this has a been pleasure. Fun and uh, very, very informative as, as always. Um, so before we, we sign off here, um, just a, a reminder, where can people find you and how can they get to, you know, get to know you and what you do better? Uh, well, uh, first of all, anybody can just Google me and, and find me. It's Mark, M-A-R-C, Ostro, O-S-T-R-O-W. Or you can go directly to my website, which is ostroesk.com, O-S-T-R-O-W-E-S-Q.com. And I have a blog with all sorts of articles about uh, music and copyright issues, uh, discussing some of these arcane things, like I mentioned, the 200-page copyright mm. office report on music <laughs> licensing and and all that sort of stuff um and as for what i do again all of that's on the website but i'm a copyright and entertainment lawyer I've practiced in the music area for a long time uh, i used to run the new york office of boozy before i re-entered private practice before then i worked in the legal department of bmi so, you know, I've learned a few things about this business over the course of time, <laughs> but I also represent uh, other uh, creative types and people who want to license and use creative works. Yeah. So. Nice. And you have a, um, an artist, you call it a tune-up? 
Yeah, uh, what it is, is I'm well aware that uh, composers and songwriters, particularly uh, people in the new music community, um, uh, usually don't have uh, a lot of money and have, tend to have more time. And this tune-up service is something that I do uh, by phone or by Skype where you can book a half hour, an hour of my time, send me a couple of questions or issues in advance, and at uh, something that's well below my otherwise hourly billable rate, mm -hmm. you can get some basic advice in a convenient way, and um, that's what it's uh, that's what it's designed for. So, for example, if somebody had a specific example about whether something would be fair use or mm -hmm. or how they would go about clearing something that's difficult book a tune-up session and I can tell you how to do it. If you actually want me to go and do the stuff for you, then that's uh, a, a different matter and I'd have to charge for that. But like I said, very often artists have more time than money mm -hmm. and are more than happy to go and do the legwork themselves if they have informed advice on how and what to do. So that's uh, among the things that that service is designed for. Awesome. Cool. So, so thank you for, for being on again today. Um, stick around for a second. I'm going to do my little calls to action, and then we'll chat in the green room. Uh, so everybody, thank you for listening today. Uh, I see we've had some, some live viewers, which is awesome. Um, thank you for being here for that. Uh, check out uh, the the podcast on Facebook. I, I, I always post when there's an, a guest going to be on live, and I let you know when new things come out. And uh, make sure that you join the podcast mailing list because I'm going to be sending out some some new stuff that you're uh, interviews with people and stuff that you're not going to get uh, on the podcast here, and you'll get s some more news. Uh, I won't spam you, I promise. So uh, do all that, and next week. I will be talking live with a couple of folks who's great. I for totally forgot who they are. Awesome. Good for me. So <laughs> just. Well, tune check. in next week. Yeah. Yeah. Who they are. So check out the Facebook page and you'll find out who it is. <laughs> so thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.